0: Welcome everyone, this is the Review of Democracy. My name is Ikerito Iseaurit and it is my pleasure to welcome Professor Archie Brown today. Welcome. Hello. Great to have you in red So briefly, Professor Archie Brown, after teaching for 34 years at San Anthony College, uh, he became Emeritus Professor of Politics at Oxford University and an Emeritus Fellow of San Anthony in October 2005. He continues to pursue an active program of research and writing. Uh, Before that, Professor Brown was university lecturer in Soviet institutions from 1971 until 1989, and from 1989 to 2005, professor of politics. Uh, Brown's principal research interests are the comparative study of political leadership, the end of the Cold War, the Gorbachev era, the evolution and dissolution of communists, political culture, democratization and national identity. Brown is today here to discuss his most recent book, The Human Factor, Gorbachev, Reagan, and Thatcher, and the End of the Cold War, that was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. It was awarded the Panskin House Book Prize in 2021 for original, insightful, and well-written book. Uh, Before that, he published other books like The Myth of the Strong Leader, political leadership in the modern age and a very famous book, The Rise and Fall of Communists in 2010. So to begin with the first question. So your new book, The Human Factor, explores the leadership, the foreign policy roles and the interaction of Gorbachev, Reagan and Thatcher. As you argue, there are multiple ways to interpret what exactly was the Cold War and why did it end in the way it did and when it did. So my first big opening question is, why approach it from the perspective of leadership?
1: Yeah, there are lots of um, uh, explanations of the end of the Cold War, and I didn't find most of the popular ones satisfactory. And one of the main arguments is that um, the military buildup of the United States, especially under Ronald Reagan, made it um, impossible for the Soviet Union to keep up. And so they, in effect, um, ran up the white flag. And if you look at the interviews of people who served in the Reagan administration, most of them adopt that view that it was the Reagan military buildup that was crucial, and perhaps especially SDI, his Strategic Defense Initiative, um, so-called, with the vast sums devoted to missile defense against incoming um, missiles. And uh, the other big argument is that um, the Soviet Union economically couldn't keep up, so it was forced to reform because um, of technological lag and slowdown in the rate of economic growth in the Soviet Union. Well, it's perfectly true that there was um, pressure on the Soviet Union um, from the American military build up. It's perfectly true there was um, an economic slowdown. And for Gorbachev, both of these factors were reasons for um, reforming. However, the, before Gorbachev became General Secretary, throughout Reagan's first term, the Soviet Union continued absolutely as before. Um, Reagan um, overlapped with the last two years of Leonid Brezhnev, a Soviet leader, with the whole of the General Secretarieships of um, Yuri Andropov and Konstantin chernyanka and then also partly with Gorbachev. And nothing changed in Soviet policy until Gorbachev became leader. Um, But the argument about the economic reform basically falls down because Gorbachev's reforms were essentially political reforms. He didn't marketize the Soviet economy. So it's hard to argue the Soviet Union by economic slowdown was forced into reform when in fact the economy went from bad to worse. Uh, In that sense, Gorbachev got the worst of all possible worlds because he, uh, with political reform, people were not afraid to um, speak their minds, um, to criticize, to protest, go on strike. And uh, in the last two years of the Soviet Union, the economy really was deteriorating badly. Um, Gorbachev um, became General Secretary of the Communist Party and therefore Soviet leader in March 1985. It wasn't until 1990 that he was persuaded in principle that the Soviet Union should move to a market economy. But by that time, his popularity was in steep decline, and he knew that um, things would get worse before they got better, Uh, prices would go up, prices of basic foodstuffs, electricity, lighting, um, heating, and uh, so he hesitated. So in fact, the move to market prices took place after the Soviet Union ceased to exist. So you know, this is why I think those arguments, which are very popular about the causes of the end of, over, of the Cold War, don't really hold up. And um, you know, I'm old enough to live through the whole of the um, Cold War. I mean, I started school in April 1943 during the Second World mm-hmm. War, and the, the Cold War, in my view, began. It was the Soviet takeover of um, central uh, part of central and pretty well the whole of Eastern Europe and it ended in my view when those countries became independent and non-communist in the course of 1989 and I'm well aware of um, how low the expectations were in 1985 of fundamental change. I went to I took part in a conference in 1984 of it was a conference of establishment figures from the United States and Britain, people who had served in government, um, ambassadors, politicians with a sprinkling of academics. And the proceedings were summed up 18, 1984 by a British ambassador who said, well, there's one thing we all know, the Soviet Union isn't going to change. And that was the general feeling at that time. I didn't think that time. I mean, I, I looked at the ceiling, I thought, it, you know, good God! I mean, uh, I was well aware Gorbachev was going to become Soviet leader. I'd been backing Gorbachev for several years. I, I thought he would make a difference, and I was sure he was going to become General Secretary. Um, but um, I know very well how low the expectations were. So people moved from saying change in the Soviet Union is impossible to saying change in the Soviet Union was inevitable after it happened. Being very wise after the event. In other words, it did make a huge difference who became leader in the Soviet Union in particular. Uh, This is a point about leadership, power and ideas. Mindset of a leader was crucial. Gorbachev had a different mindset from anyone else in the Mm -hmm. Politburo. But the power was important. The power of the General Secretary was very great in the Soviet system. It was a very hierarchical system and great authority was placed in the hands of the person at the top of the hierarchy and ideas were important Uh, there were lots of ideas in floating around in Soviet research institutes even in Brezhnev's time that people had to exercise a certain amount of self-censorship in the way they Mm -hmm. presented them even in small circulation books and um, and then so they spoke much more freely in private than they ever could in public but Gorbachev actually encouraged these people to think the unthinkable and not only to think it but to say it out loud So this combination of leadership, power, and ideas in the Soviet Union was decisive for the change. And uh, well, in the book, I bring in also the American President Reagan, because if you're going to end the Cold War, this is your crucial partner, the United States. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, Reagan, of course, was a hardline anti-communist, anti-Soviet. And um, so, you know, if you could win him over to, reached some agreements then that that was quite something Margaret Thatcher um you know may seem anomalous in the title of my book because the disparity between British military power and that of the two military superpowers was very great but her importance was that she was far and away Reagan's favorite foreign leader he described her as a soul and she had real influence over him and um she established a surprisingly good relationship with Gorbachev. Um, she met him three months before he became a Soviet leader when he came to Britain. And though they argued, they finished up you know with that meeting with mutual respect. And um, they had a lot of meetings. Margaret Thatcher had more meetings with a Soviet or Russian leader than any other British prime minister in history, including Winston Churchill during the Second World War when Stalin was an ally. Um, So she was a kind of intermediary um, and um, played um, a role in persuading Dragan that Gorbachev was a different kind of Soviet leader from any hitherto, and that it was important to engage with him.
0: Absolutely. Very good, uh, interesting ideas. Like I was going to ask precisely uh, why Margaret Thatcher and not, for example, Francois Mitterrand or Hermann Kohl, which are more famous cases, and I think uh, during your book, you really uh, explained the role of Thatcher, especially in 1989 and 1990, before she, she, uh, she left the prime minister in the UK. Uh, also, relating to ideas, I, I agree with you that ideas play a key role in any political development. And I would like you to ask, uh, your book is divided into three parts. And the first part deals with the formative years of the leaders that you analyse. Uh, in your book, you argue how important was the impact of World War II. So, could you tell us more about how World War II influenced their political ideas, uh, in particular Gorbachev and Thatcher, and to a lesser extent, George H. Bush? Because if I remember correctly, Reagan was not influenced that much.
1: World War II was um, more important for some of these leaders than others. For Ronald Reagan, it, it wasn't as important us all that in a way because he was making movies. He was making um movies for the American army and so on. Sometimes he in later life he confused the movie with um, um you know real fighting I and mean, but he did, he wasn't a participant in the war. But um you know he had a, a relatively easy war compared with um Gorbachev in particular. Um so for Gorbachev it was um a traumatic time because um the um so, uh, Soviet Union was invaded. His own uh, native area was occupied by German forces for five months. His father was away fighting in the war and it was a struggle for survival and he was looking after the family plot their um, one cow while his mother was working on a collective farm. And um, you know when he, he went out with uh, some other boys, he bor- Gorbachev was born in 1931 so he was 10 when the war began for the soviet union in june 1941 Um, uh, and during the war he went off with some boys um, uh, in the spring and they found um, hundreds of bodies of soviet soldiers the snow had melted and exposing them so there were lots of horrors um, and um, there were lots of um, executions of um, communist party members and Gorbachev um, was the grandson of the uh chairman of a collective farm his father was fighting the soviet army his parents hid him that uh, his mother hid him at one time in so away from the village and in, in, in another farm um because they're afraid that um, you know with the german forces approaching he might be killed as the grandson of the collective farm leader so um you know he had a very hard time for two years he didn't go to school um but interestingly enough you know, he didn't hold us against Germans as people. And, uh, you know, later he became very popular in Germany, understandably, because of his key role in facilitating German unification. And Margaret Thatcher um, continued to have a kind of anti-German streak, even after the Second World War. I mean, she didn't have all that difficult a war. She was a student at Oxford and then there was rationing, there were shortages, um, there, and um, you know, um, everybody had um, a harder time during the Second World War in Britain. But the country wasn't invaded. There was no comparison between the hardships of her hard war and the hardships of Gorbachev's. Um, and yet, you know, she was. in later life, she was against German unification and only very reluctantly went along with it because it was going to happen anyway. Um, so she, um, uh, she she actually tried to persuade Gorbachev to block it, um, and uh, saw herself that at that point as an ally of him against German unification. But Gorbachev was enough of a realist to see that um, it would not make any sense to to block it, and um, it was in the long term interest of Russia to have good relations with Germany. Um, so. Um, uh, the the other, George Bush, of course, George H. W. Bush, Bush the Elder, um, was a combatant in the Second World War, so for him it was a, a big experience too. The person that Gorbachev, and in, in some ways, found it easiest to have a rapport with speaking about the war was Helmut Kohl, because Germany too had been invaded by Soviet troops after um, responding to the Soviet invasion of Germany, um, and his brother was killed in the war, so his wartime experiences. In some ways were a closer parallel to Gorbachev's Um, but Gorbachev you could say was you know committed to peace because you know for him war was a terrible experience and he thought nuclear war would be madness
0: yeah so another question i have uh, in relation to these leaders before Uh, You mentioned in your book about the interactions between Thatcher and Reagan with Gorbachev before he became General Secretary of the Soviet Union. Uh, So I would like to ask, how important were these interactions between the three before Gorbachev became General Secretary, and how much do you think did it influence the later development in the 80s?
1: How important was the interaction between Gorbachev, Reagan and Thatcher? Right.
0: Yes, between 1980 to 1985, which, my opinion, was one of the most interesting because I think everyone knows many of the interaction between the three leaders after 1985, but I think it's less known how they interact before Gorbachev became General Secretary of the Soviet Union in 1985. And I was interested to know how much do you think this interaction between the three influence will happen later from 1985 onwards?
1: Well, the fact is that Margaret Thatcher was the only one to meet Gorbachev before he became leader. Well, actually, um, Mitterung met him very, very briefly when he was in Moscow, but he didn't have any substantive conversation. So, um, Reagan met um, Gorbachev for the first time at the Geneva summit in November 1985. Margaret Thatcher had met him in Chequers, the British prime minister's country house. in December 1984, three months before he became leader. Um, So, and she, after that, went to the United States and went to meeting in Camp David and uh, spoke about Gorbachev and, um, you know, George Shultz has said she was just as enthusiastic about him in private as she'd been in public. But at the end of the meeting, uh, when, at the end of Gorbachev's visit to Britain, she said, um, you know, I like Mr. Gorbachev, I can do business with him. Um, So I think in that year, that she had met Gorbachev and Reagan had not. Um, that was um, especially important because then the Americans, to some extent, were relying on Thatcher's opinion. And of course, they, even the hardliners in the Reagan administration, um, trusted her because they didn't think she was soft on communism, and uh, which she wasn't. But um, the um, she she really was, to an extent, won over by Gorbachev and. Um, I mean, later her foreign policy advisor thought she'd gone too far, so Percy Craddock said that she acted as an agent of influence between um, uh, Washington and Moscow, selling um, uh, Gorbachev in Washington as a man to do business with and so on. Um, so that was quite surprising for somebody had been called the Iron Lady by the Soviet um, army newspaper in the mid 1970s when she was still leader of the opposition. But this title, the Iron Lady, it did her no harm in Washington. You know, they, Even in the CIA and Defense Department, she was respected as well as in the State Department. So I would say Margaret Thatcher was an unusually influential prime minister with the United States. Um, and uh, the, the very fact that she'd been a hardliner in, in that sense um, strengthened her credentials with the Reagan administration. Um, a more liberal conservative or a labor leader would have had less impact in Washington in the regular years. Um, so, and with Gorbachev, um, you know, he, like other Soviet leaders, um, was very skeptical about Reagan and wondered if he was serious about pursuing peace. And Thatcher helped to persuade him that he um, was, that Reagan, when he talked about peace through strength, he did actually believe in the peace component as well as his strength and it turned out that um, in one respect Gorbachev and Reagan had more in common than they had with Thatcher and that is they both wanted to get rid of nuclear weapons. Um, In Reykjavik in 1986 they came close to agreeing on a complete um, abolition of nuclear weapons and Margaret Thatcher was horrified by that because one of her convictions was that only nuclear weapons had kept the peace and she was extremely reluctant to give up any British nuclear weapons.
0: Uh, you argue throughout the book, especially in part two, about the important role the change in foreign policies of so these leaders plays at the end of the Cold War. Uh, an important point you make is how the political vision, as you already mentioned, play a key role at the end of the Cold War. Uh, I would like to ask how much did their vision change from previous leader? Uh, In particular, you point out that the most important chain came from Gorbachev. Can you tell us more about why?
1: Yeah, I would say that um, vision is an interesting word to use in this context because somebody like George H.W. Bush was never looking much further forward in the next election. He was an arch pragmatist and, um, you know, he... Famously said that one thing. I don't do the vision thing. And uh, uh, Reagan, on the other hand, um, uh, you know, he spoke about you know the, the the city on the hill, the United States. He had uh, uh, an idealized view of the United States, and um, for example, believe in this world without nuclear weapons. And so, he was a big picture person. He was hopeless in detail, and um, they, he relied very much on those around him to fill in the detail and discussion with Gorbachev. Whereas Gorbachev also had a big picture, but he could master detail. Um, Margaret Thatcher, yes, she had um, big ideas too. She was interested in ideas. In many respects, they didn't coincide with Gorbachev's. Um, I mean, she she certainly was in favor of um, peaceful relations, clearly, and um, uh, she was able to Persuade Gorbachev how some Soviet actions were perceived in Western Europe and how you know what he didn't regard as a Soviet threat to other countries was seen as a Soviet threat in Western Europe and she spoke about you know, the invasion of Hungary in 1956 Czechoslovakia in 1968 and so on. Um, so in, in certain respects um, the they could overlap in their visions. But but Gorbachev, of course, was never a Thatcherite. He became converted to the the need for marketization of the Soviet economy, but he never believed in the kind of market economy and extreme inequalities of the Thatcher uh, model or the Reagan model. He was more attracted to a social democratic uh, model, and he liked what he saw of the German social market economy. so he was interested in big ideas, perhaps more than more than any of them. Um, in fact, you know, some people, including Vladislav Zubok, um, a Russian international relations um, international historian at London School of Economics, he said Gorbachev was too interested in ideas. You know, and instead of uh, attending to the um, national interest of the Soviet Union, he was carried away by ideas. Well, I wouldn't put it that way, but I think there's no question that. Um, he was a politician, very interested in ideas, and he liked to have, um, you know, intellectuals around him who would you know, discuss big themes. And, and yeah, the point at which he and Reagan really overlapped was on on a world without nuclear weapons.
0: Uh, another question that I have: one of the things that I liked uh, a lot was that you recall your own experience at the time. Can you tell us how you recall? your role, and uh, on that note, how your memories might have served your own interpretation as an historian and a political scientist?
1: Well, I, uh, yeah, I took part in three seminars with Margaret Thatcher, um, 1983, and Checkers, September the 8th, and then um the night before Gorbachev came to Britain for the first time in December 1984 I was in 10 Downing Street speaking to her and Geoffrey Howe about Gorbachev and then in 1987 February 87 took part in another checker seminar before she made a long visit to the Soviet Union um in March and um I got these all the government papers cabinet office papers and foreign office papers declassified all the papers relating to those seminars and i i hope that when we met her for the first time and it was an all-day seminar started nine o'clock in the morning went on until three o'clock in the afternoon with eight academics there on our side of the table and prime minister foreign secretary defense secretary um, michael heseltine jeffrey howe and other leading people in the government on the other side of the table. Um, I hoped it might have some slight impact, but you know, I didn't have high expectations that academics could have any influence. Um, and I was surprised when I got these papers declassified to find that um, the private secretary of prime minister was writing about the change of policy following the checker seminar, which will not be publicly announced. And there'll be no mention of the seminar, this meeting having taken place. Um, now I'm not saying that we were the only the academics were the only ones with influence because the Foreign Office had also been urging more engagement with the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And Margaret Thatcher had been completely resistant to this. Um, and the view the academics put, you know, was also that the more engagement the better Um, and the way we put it was at all levels from dissidents to general secretary and there were other things we said that went beyond the foreign office so in my paper for example I'd written about Gorbachev as um, the most open-minded member of the Soviet Politburo and it would be in the interests of the Soviet people and our interest if he did become um, Soviet leader and I thought he had a good chance of becoming Soviet leader in due course. Um, the Foreign Office, my paper was eight pages. That was our limit. The Foreign Office paper was 80 pages. And there was no mention of Gorbachev or of any potential Soviet leader there. And Andropov was the person in power at the time. So um, I assumed that my invitation to come to Downey Street the night before Gorbachev um, came in December 1984 was a result of such a remembering that, you know, I had written about Gorbachev in that some paper for that seminar. And then I elaborated in the conversation because we were asked to speak for 10 minutes to make some additional points Um, and uh, she listened to us. It was interesting that um, if she thought that people had got useful information for her specialists with some knowledge, she actually listened. Whereas the politicians on her side of the table could hardly get a word in before she interrupted them. Jeffrey Howe, in particular, he could, couldn't finish a sentence before she interrupted him. But she, was eight of us there, she only twice interrupted, and that was didn't interrupt me, but she twice <clears throat> interrupted others um, to get them to explain what they meant by a certain term. Um, and Jeffrey Howe, in his memoir, says that um, you know the uh, the prime minister acted with unusual restraint, and 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 you know listening to the specialists, the experts. It turned out the meeting was of some consequence. You know, whether it was our independent influence or whether we reinforced what the foreign office were saying or a bit of both, um, what the papers show is that there was a change of policy towards engagement with the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Geoffrey Howe, proceeded as foreign secretary to visit every East European capital and Margaret Thatcher a few months later made her visit to hungary and then uh, the invitation to gorbachev followed in 1984.
0: thank you very fascinating so part three of your book is concerned with the immediate consequence in 1990 1991 or the end of the cold war uh, what it meant the pluralization of the soviet political system uh you contain in your book that the cold war ended in its ideological dimension with Gorbachev's speech to the United Nations in December 1988. Why do you consider this event the ideological end of the Cold War? Uh, and following this, you letter argued that ultimately there cannot be a definitive end date of the Cold War since choosing one involves a judgment about what constitutes the core of the conflict. Will you be willing to speak more about this?
1: Yes, I think the Cold War did end uh, ideologically in 1988. Um, Gorbachev had already, uh, in the summer of that year, spoken at the 19th Conference of the Soviet Communist Party about um, every country's right to decide for themselves what kind of system they wanted. But when he made this point in the United Nations on 7th December 1988, um, it was much more noticed. Um, he also announced um, huge cuts in Soviet armed forces, um, and that got a lot of attention at the time. But he said that the people of every country had the right to decide for themselves what kind of um, political and economic system they wish to live in. Um, and you could say that the peoples of Eastern Europe took him at his word the following year in 1989. Um, but you know, in that speech, there was no none of the old Soviet rhetoric at all. Um, the, I uh, Gorbachev's interpreter that day, um, who remained with him, Pavel Polashinka, man people remember from photographs, um, the man with the bald head, big mustache, he was Gorbachev's interpreter at most of the summit meetings. He said, um, <clears throat> writing, I think, in ni- 2019, that reading, rereading that speech today, it's difficult to find in it even traces of Marxism Leninism. Um, there's nothing about class struggle. None of the old yeah. cliches. And um, Gorbachev, you know, spoke about all human interests and universal values. And this was a complete um, break, you know, with traditional Soviet Marxism-Leninism. He believed that there were some interests that united all humanity, um, and an uh, interest of peace being um, overwhelmingly in their, an in, in, in interest of all. Um, So it was a very idealistic uh, speech and um, the, but what was noticed most at the time were the concrete proposals to have this massive reduction in Soviet armed forces, Um, because he'd been influenced by the argument of Margaret Thatcher and others that it's all very well for you to say that you'll get rid of nuclear weapons, but the Soviet Union's got an overwhelming advantage in conventional forces. So he met that objection, you know, by announcing a unilateral massive reduction in the size of soviet conventional forces because it really was um, you know pursuing better relations um so um you know having argued that the cold war began with the soviet takeover of eastern europe it's logical for me to say that it ended when the East european countries became independent and non-communist as it did in the course of 1989 and the berlin wall fell in November of that year without a shot being fired um, by a Soviet soldier. In fact there was no shot fired by a Soviet soldier throughout that whole period of those countries becoming independent. The only fighting took place in Romania where Ceausescu tried to crack down on opposition and it was Romanians killing Romanians and that was against the will of um, the, the Moscow leadership, but they had very little influence in what Ceausescu did, and he paid for that by being executed along with his wife on Christmas Day, nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, I mean the, the different criteria for the end of the Cold War can obviously bring a different date, um, and so some people would say German unification in nineteen ninety was the end of the Cold War, um, but I think that. Um, You know after the fall of the Berlin Wall it was clear that German uh, unification was going to happen and um, so I I see that um, the Cold War ending ideologically in 1988 with Gorbachev saying that people of every country had the right to decide for themselves what kind of system they wish to live in, Um, the ending of communist rule in Eastern Europe um, being a concrete manifestation of the end of the cold war and then symbolically it ending with the malta summit between um, gorbachev and george hw bush in december 1989 when for the first time these leaders gave a joint press conference at the end and the hope it had been a very harmonious meeting and so they were speaking not as adversaries but as partners um, and um so yeah german unification i would see as a a consequence of the end of the cold war um, that um, as long as there was a cold war german unification was impossible um, and um, the but you know yeah some, one can argue about dates some people will say we'll see that german unification date as the end uh, and then of course there are many in russia today who say the cold war never did end um but i think if you look at the um how much changed at this time it it did end. And also, you know, in what I'd call, maybe now we have to call the real Cold War or the old Cold War, because we've got a new Cold War. Um, That, you know, this this was different. This was different from what we have now. Um, I Russia has become an increasingly authoritarian state, but um, in the old or real Cold War, uh, there was not only a military rivalry, an, an economic rivalry, there was a rivalry between two ideologies, you know, Marxism, Leninism on the one hand, um, which, you know, could be interpreted in different ways, but it was a, a, a significant bunch of doctrine. Um, and on the other hand, depending on who's making the argument, democracy, or in the eyes, in the mouths of other people, capitalism. But anyway, fundamentally different economic system, very different political system, very different um, ideological framework. And um, there's uh, a difference on the same scale now. I mean, there is a, a rivalry between military powers, um, and um, in some ways, more like a, a 19th century imperial rivalry. Um, it, there are many authoritarian regimes in the world today. The Putin regime is very far from being distinctive and being authoritarian. Um, and um, the economic system well it's it's a form of capitalism Um, uh, crony capitalism crooked capitalism perhaps but um, a form of capitalism so there isn't the same fundamental divide not as many fundamental dividing lines in what we may call the new cold war as there were in the old so i think that yeah there, there was a cold war which ended in 1989, or if you prefer, German unification in 1990. Yeah, thank you very much. Very interesting
0: points. And I agree with you that it's important to distinguish that what is happening now is different to what it was the Cold War and. What it happens in the 80s and 90s? Uh, that lead us to my last question, which has to do with the war on Ukraine. Uh, so, regarding the end of the Cold War, recently, because of the war on Ukraine, there has been a huge discussion on the expansion of NATO in the 90s onward. In particular, from the Russian side, it has been emphasized the promise made to Gorbachev not one inch eastward in relation to the expansion of NATO. So my question is, what can you tell us about this? Uh, more specifically, the role of NATO at the end of the Cold War?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of things have gone wrong in the post-Cold War period, and um, with faults on both sides. Um, you know, one has to be very careful speaking about this, because if you talk about any mistakes on the Western side, um, it, it, there's always a danger that it looks like um, justifying what the Russians are doing now. And it's. It's a a brutal um, war that's being pursued in Ukraine and there's no justification for it. Uh, At the same time, there were big mistakes on both sides um, in the past 30 years. Um, A combination of insensitive um, Western foreign policy and um, some huge um, mistakes in Soviet, in Russian domestic policy, in the 1990s, um, the, what was presented to Russians in the name of democracy you know, led to disillusionment with democracy. Um, you know, we know from opinion polls uh, at a time when people were speaking freely in 1989, 1990, there was huge enthusiasm in, in Russia at that time for moving to genuine competitive elections, governments who were accountable to the people, and so on, and main institutions of democracy. Um, and the, the but in the course of the 1990s um, you got um, Russia's um, rich natural resources sold off to predetermined buyers in rigged auctions massive inequality um, a certain amount of rigging of elections um, and uh, Yeltsin only won the 1996 presidential election because of the vast resources that were put in on, on his side by the so-called oligarchs. And they were oligarchs at that time because they had huge influence over Russian policy and they they got hold of the Russian gas industry, oil industry and all the, the precious metals and so on. Um, so that helped to lead to a disillusionment with democracy in Russia. Then Russian policy also um, led to disillusionment in the West with the, um, the brutal way in which um, the suppression of Chechnya was pursued in 1995, 96, and then again in 1999. And and often people talk about Putin doing that in 99, but Yeltsin was still president in 99, and he certainly was president in the mid nineties when the uh, attacks on Chechnya began. Um, But I think a great opportunity was missed in 1992. Um, The, I mean, NATO, was founded because of Soviet expansionism and to put a stop to it, to make sure no other European country was brought under Soviet domination. Um, well, in 1992, um, there was no Warsaw Pact. There was no international communist movement um, and there was no Soviet Union. Um, so NATO really looked pretty redundant in 1992. Well, that, I think, was an opportunity to create new security architecture in Europe. Um, and the building on the CSCE, OSCE, um, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which included not only European countries, but also the United States and Canada. And um, if they had got together um, to create a new security structure russia would have been there ukraine would have been there as a newly independent country and um you know russia would have had a part in determining the functions purposes organization Um, it was not really realistic for russia to join nato at various times gorbachev yeltsin and even putin spoke about you know why not russia in nato um, and was pointed out, they had to meet all sorts of criteria that had been established by the Americans and so on. And so it was clearly impossible. But that I think was a historic opportunity missed. Just as the United Nations was created at the end of the Second World War, that's going to be at the end of the um, <clears throat> Cold War. Um, so then um, NATO gradually expanded uh, the countries of Eastern Europe all wanted to join uh central European countries first and then former republics of the Soviet Union and that was you know um, a much more bitter pill for a Russian leadership to swallow especially the security military apparatus because um in Moscow um, we can say and I would say that NATO was not going to attack um, Russia unless um, Russia attacked another country in NATO however NATO was perceived in Moscow as a hostile military alliance directed against them. And as more and more countries joined NATO in Europe, countries that had formerly been um, uh, part of the Soviet bloc, um, and who didn't very clearly distinguish between their communist rulers and Russians, um, then, you know, against whom was NATO directed if it was not Russia. So it's not surprising that NATO expansion was seen as um, hostile to Russia's national interest. Now, for many Russians, it didn't bother bother them in their everyday lives, but in the security and military sector, it did. Um, And um, there there were attempts to mitigate the harm that was being done to relations with Russia. An organization called Partnership for Peace was uh, constructed to to bring um, Russia into discussions, um, that Russia was expelled from that partnership for peace in 2014 when they took over Crimea, and um, intervened in Eastern Ukraine. Um, so the relationship has gone from bad to worse over the years. But you know, I would argue that in a way, the the real Cold War was a necessary Cold War, inasmuch as much as, you know, under Stalin, there was a takeover of Eastern Europe and Soviet mm-hmm. regimes, highly authoritarian regimes, established under Moscow's strict control. Um, and uh, there had to be um, a military as well as a political resistance to that. Um, the new Cold War, I think, uh, the Cold War that developed after the end of the old Cold War. Was an unnecessary Cold War in the sense that with more political imagination combined with realism, it could have been prevented. Now, imagination to create new structures, but also realism because realism is needed since more than 90% of the world's nuclear weapons are in the hands of the United States and the uh, and Russia. Um, and uh, you know Jack Matlock, who was um, the American ambassador to Russia and Soviet Union in 1987 to 91 when he was giving evidence to a congressional committee some years ago he said that well, russia is the, the main threat to the united states it's the one country that could utterly destroy the united states and that's still the case so it's not really clear that um nato expansion was in the long-term interest of the united states um It's, uh, I think now it's it's very necessary given the way that Russia um, is acting, but you could say that, you know, there's been a self um, um, uh, justifying prophecy that um, uh, Mm -hmm. George Kennan who was the architect of the American policy in the cold war in the late 1940s was against NATO expansion in the 1990s. And he said, it will lead to a new cold war. And and who's to argue that he was wrong. so yeah i think there were terrible mistakes on both sides um but um where we are now um and i've always been in favor of engagement with um russia with the soviet leadership um now is not the optimal time for engagement but the time will come again yeah, when it will be, will be necessary <laughs> to engage with the russian leadership because russia is a great country it's a huge military power, Um, It's um, uh, as we know now that Russia is important for food production, it's important for many natural resources, it's a country, it's an an anomalous country in many ways because um, uh, it's got a higher level of education than should go along with authoritarian rule. There is a correlation between levels of education and uh, democracy and Russia is at a level of education where it should be a democracy so I um, I mean there are people saying well Russia will never be democratic and maybe even some Russians now who have given up hope on that but I don't think any country is doomed to be authoritarian forever every country in the world today that we would call democratic was at one time a highly authoritarian whether under an absolute monarch or a local warlord Um, but we all came out of authoritarianism
0: Thank you very much. I think we I agree with you, and I think we need to look optimistic that every country can become democratic at some point. Uh, this is the end of our interview. Really, thank you very much, Professor Alcibam. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. Um, for our listeners, uh, I highly recommend that you read the, the Human Factor, Gorbachev, Rigan and Thatcher and the End of the Cold War published at Oxford University in 2022. Again, thank you very much for this interesting conversation. Thank you very much.